how, how do you, how do I, how do we approach God? And, and I've heard it said that a lot of times that can be predicated on our relationship with our earthly father. If we've had an angry father, we tend to believe that God is intimidating and therefore we, we kind of approach him with trepidation. Or maybe we had an indifferent father and we don't even believe God wants a relationship with us in the first place. Maybe we had a warm, loving father who was very present and therefore we have the same kind of affections for our heavenly father. And, and I've seen in this culture today is a culture where we don't show a lot of respect, a lot of, a lot of reverence. There's not a lot of awe or, or things that are sacred in our culture. And I think that often carries over into our relationship with God. And we kind of treat him like we would a bro, right? Like, what up, God? You know, we, we got to throw a prayer out before, you know, we eat, text him, praying hands emoji, you know, whatever it is. I'll hit you up on Snapchat later. Is that where the kids are on Snapchat now? I hear Facebook is not popular anymore. I don't know. I'm getting old and out of touch. But what we see in, in the scripture today, and what we're going to see in, in Exodus chapters 19 and 20 on full display is God's holiness. And God is not a God that we are to approach in a flippant manner. And yet that same God, where angels fear to tread, that's the same God who has invited us into intimacy with him. It's the paradox of the one that we serve and worship. And so this morning we're going to see the giving of the law. And this is one of the greatest moments in Israel's history. You could argue one of the most momentous uh, moments in the world's history. And God is going to give this law to his chosen people, Israel. Now, we ask the question here, why would he give the law? What's the purpose behind God giving these commandments to his, his people? And I see three things here and, and scattered throughout scripture. Number one, to show the holiness of God. God is going to show in these commandments his standard of perfection. He goes, I don't care if you're better than your neighbor. Do you live up to this standard? This is my level of holiness. Because the second point is to show the sinfulness of man. The law clearly reveals that none of us in this room, none of us on earth, measure up to that standard. Which leads us to the third point of the law, which is ultimately to show us the grace of God and points us to Jesus. The one, because we can't keep that standard of God, there's one who came and kept that standard for us. And so as we walk through this, we open up to Exodus chapter 19. I'll be in the New Living Translation. You're free to follow along in your inferior version. Um, verse 1, exactly two months after the Israelites left Egypt, they arrived in the wilderness of Sinai. After breaking camp at Rephidim, remember that's where they struck the rock where God was standing and the water came out. They came to the wilderness of Sinai and set up camp there at the base of Sinai. Now imagine this for a moment. You have three million, somewhere between two and a half and three and a half million people are the estimates. And they have been wandering in the hot, stinky desert for a month, for two months, twice as bad. And they get there and they have not taken a shower the entire way. So you know, like, you know what I'm talking about, like day four of a camping trip? You know what I'm talking about, right? And, and you start to stink and you start putting more layers of clothes on just at this point just to kind of contain the stink. And, and you get to this level. Now imagine that times like three million. If three million Jews wandering through the wilderness, no shower, no change of clothes, in the hot desert, and, and they come to this point, and they come to Sinai. And now there are some who say uh, that the Mount, Mount Sinai is at the bottom, where there's this mountain range there at the bottom of, of the uh, Sinai Peninsula. 
And they would believe that first body of water you see there was the Red Sea that they crossed. There are others who actually believe that Sinai was more over on the Arabian Peninsula and that it was the second body of water that is the Red Sea that they crossed. And you know what? It doesn't matter. Like, it really doesn't change the story either way. They're going to be moving up to Israel, which we see circled there in red. And what we're going to find is right here at the start of Exodus 19, even though they're not very far away from the promised land, starting in Exodus 19 and moving all the way through Numbers 9, God is actually going to have the people parked right here at Sinai. He has some things that he wants them to know about himself and the way that he wants them to live. And so for 11 months and 6 days, they hang out here at this mountain. And they have this conversation. Now watch what happens in verse 3. It says, Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God. Now let's not gloss over this. Moses is going on a hike. And at the top of it, it's not the view from uh, skyline. He's going to see God. And this is not something to do flippantly, not something to do lightly. How do you prepare for that? Is it Moses' mom? Come here. You know, you don't... Not every day you see Yahweh, you know, you, and, and she sends him up the mountain. What, what, remember when Moses at the burning bush, what did he do? He took off his sandals. He averted his eyes. This is burning bush on steroids. He's about to climb this mountain, and God in his full splendor, his full glory, is to show himself to Moses. And this morning, we're going to see what it looks like for a sinful man to approach God in his holiness. And then he says in Verse 3, the Lord called them from the mountain. Give these instructions to the family of Jacob. Announce it to the descendants of Israel. He's got, I says, I have some things that I need you to hear. Some instructions that I'm about to give to these people, my people. And he says, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians. You remember who I am, my power and my glory that I showed you. You know, and I love this, you know how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Did you catch that? He says, I brought you to myself. No man comes to God on his own. No woman comes to God on her own. And he says, I brought you on eagle's wings. I love this. If you ever watch like Planet Earth or something like that, which you you should because it's amazing, um, the mama eagle will actually fly over top of the baby eagle because these little baby eagles, they they can't fly for that long yet. And so when they kind of lose their wing ability, they fall right on top of their mother and their mother carries them to the destination. Both our salvation and our growth as believers are carried through by the power of God. It's like when you, if you carried a paraplegic across the finish line of a race, it's the one who carries them that receives all the glory because they did all of the work. And we are these helpless little baby eagles who can't fly an inch without being carried by our God. And so then he's going to lay out this covenant. And what he, he does here, and we've talked about this before in our story. Remember he made a covenant with Abraham. And we said that sometimes these covenants or these promises, these pacts, sometimes they're unconditional. Abraham's covenant was unconditional. He said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you this promised land. It's going to be through your nation that all nations will be blessed. Talking about Jesus coming through the line of Abraham. And those conditions were not, condi- those, they were not conditional. There was nothing Abraham had to do to see those promises come to fruition. What we're going to see here is a different kind of covenant. And the second word gives us a big clue. He says, now if, there it is, there's the if-then It's the condition. If you will obey me and keep my covenant. So there's the if. If you obey, 
Then you will be my people, my own special treasure from all the earth. You'll be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message to give to the people of Israel. Because if you obey me, you're going to be this special people. We, we looked forward, Deuteronomy 28, he kind of unpacks this. And he goes, verse 1, if, you, if, if, if you obey all of my commands, you'll be healthy, you, your crops will grow, I'm going to keep you in the promised land. But then he says, if you refuse to listen and you do not obey all my commands, and he goes on to list all of the curses, you'll get sick. Your crops won't grow. I'm going to kick you out of the land. You see, the promised land was given to Abraham unconditionally, but their ability to possess it and enjoy it was based on the adherence to the law. The land will always belong to Israel, but whether or not those specific Israelites will occupy it is based on their obedience to these commandments. Now, it's important when we read these things. This was a promise to Israel, not to us today. When we read these things, we must keep them in their proper context. Who said it and who do they say it to? So if I go over to my brother's house and my sister-in-law Ashley tells Ray, my two-year-old nephew, if you go poo-poo on the potty, I will give you candy. I cannot just apply that promise to myself and hope that when I get off the toilet and leave the bathroom, that she'll be standing there with a Snickers bar, which would be amazing. But that's not a promise to me. So, so God, we always have to look and say, who was the promise made to? This was to the people of Israel, a specific covenant he's making with Israel, not to the United States of America. We as believers in the USA today, we're not going to get kicked out of the country if we don't obey the commands. And, and in Christ, we are no longer under this law-based, I will bless you if you obey, I will curse you if you disobey covenant. This is the people of Israel, and we've got to keep it in that context, or we're going to have some really messed up theology and really messed up lives. Now, Based on their track record, we saw last week, they went three days before they complained about water, a month before they complained about food. They said, well, send us back to Egypt where we were servants. Do we have any reason to believe that the Israelites can pull off this covenant? Look at what they say, though, in verse 8. All the people responded together. And I actually wonder if it's like three million people in unison. Like, one, two, three. We will do everything the Lord has commanded. They say, we're in. We'll put the ring on. We will agree to this covenant. And so it says, Moses brought the people's answer back to the Lord. They said, yes, we agree. If we obey, to bless us. If we disobey, you'll curse us. So they enter into this agreement with God, and it reminds us that we do not enter covenants lightly. And so then in verse 10, it says, the Lord told Moses, go down and prepare the people for my arrival. Consecrate them, consecrate them today and tomorrow, and have them wash their clothing. Now again, remember the context here. The word consecrate, it means set apart or make holy they, have not, they are not showering every day, okay? They are not using their doTERRA products. They cannot go to Walmart and buy new clothes. They, they, they stink and they're sweaty. And so when he says, wash your clothing, this is a momentous occasion. Now listen, laundry, doing laundry does not make these people acceptable before God. It's symbolic. God's showing them, if you want to come to me, you must come in, in a holy, sinless manner. You can't just walk into my presence with all of your sin. So they wash their clothes as a symbol of coming to God the right way. And then verse 12, he says, mark off a boundary all around the mountain. Warn the people, be careful. Do not go up on the mountain or even touch its boundaries. Anyone who touches the mountain will certainly be put to death. 
You hear that. He says, uh, similarly, there's this physical boundary he sets up, and he says, we, it's showing we cannot just approach God. And in fact, he says, you can't have a relationship with me as you are. Just to approach me in my presence on my mountain, it's not going to happen. So, so it's this, this command was so serious that they actually post guards around the mountain, and anyone who crosses the line, in fact, if somebody crosses the line, if you touched them, these guards would shoot you. They would kill you. That's how serious he's taking this moment. God lives in unapproachable light. And scriptures say if we were to see his face, we would fall over dead. Which is why Jesus is so sweet. (laughs) Because in him, we draw near and we call him Dada. And then in verse 16... There's this amazing scene. On the morning of the third day, thunder roared and lightning flashed and a dense cloud came over on the mountain. There was a long, loud blast from a ram's horn and all the people trembled. No kidding. Moses led them out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. All of Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in the form of fire. Can you imagine this scene? The smoke billowed into the sky like smoke from a brick kiln and the whole mountain shook violently. As the blast of the ram's horn grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God thundered his reply. Can you imagine being in that moment, hearing the voice of God? This would be terrifying. And in a storm, we are reminded of how big God is and how small we are. See, we in Alaska, we don't really know thunder and lightning. Okay, we don't have good thunder. That's like the one knock that I'd have on this state. Other than uh, we'll have spring anytime soon here, Lord. Um, so, so what he's, but I've, I remember being in Oklahoma once, and I was a few hundred yards away from this tornado. It was one of the most terrifying experiences in my entire life. We saw last spring when God just shook his finger and, and, and caused a little earthquake to ripple through our peninsula and how easily that can throw us into this uproar. It reminds us of how powerful and how awesome he is. And, and then in, in Exodus 20, this is God's thunderous reply. And what he's going to speak to the people here is he's going to lay out the specifications of the covenant. He's going to show them their commands. Now, when we think of these covenants or these commandments, we often think of the Ten Commandments, right? That's a lot to follow. But he actually, in, this, in these three, in the next four books, he's going to lay out 613 commandments for Israel to follow. He says, obey every single one of these 613 commands. And then we're going to see within these commands, there's actually three different kinds of laws. There's the moral law, which is basically just right and wrong. There's the ceremonial laws, which was kind of like day-to-day living in their culture and kind of the, 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 the procedures that they were supposed to take in some of those things. And then finally, the ceremonial laws, which was basically the feasts and the festivals. God's going to show them how specifically they are to come to him in worship. Now, when we look at the the Ten Commandments, these are the moral law. This is the the right and wrong laws. These are kind of the foundational laws that the other 603 are founded on. And what we find, and you may have heard this before, the first four that we're going to look at this morning, don't worry, we're not going to look at all 613. I want lunch too. Um, The first four are vertical. They're our relationship with God. And then the next six are the horizontal laws where they are between each other. Now, what I want us to look at this morning is that show, to show that these commands, what they actually do here is they reveal the character of God himself. In other words, he's saying, if you perfectly keep these laws, you will be like me. And the only way we can have a relationship with God is if we are like him. 
In other words, if you don't keep these commandments, you will not be like me. You will be unholy, whereas I am holy, and therefore we cannot have a relationship with him. That's what he's telling Israel. So let's look at these laws. Number one, it says there shall be no other gods. And God gave the people all these instructions. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. He reminds them at the beginning here, know who it is who's saying these things. Remember who I am and why I think I have any business telling you how to live. I am your God. And then here's the first rule. You must not have any other gods but me. His first rule shows us, what does that show us about God? It shows us that God is a God worshiper. And so should Israel be. That God is actually God-centered. And because God is all about himself, the rest of creation should also be about himself. Scripture tells us this. Isaiah, bring all who claim me as their God, for I have made them for my glory. It was I who created them. So all people were created for his glory. And then Romans 11 zooms back out and it says, For everything comes from him, exists by his power, and is intended for his glory. All, all means all, all glory to him forever. Amen. He says every ounce of glory on this earth should be angled and directed toward me. Now we might go, sounds a little ego maniacal does it not that god is this arrogant guy who says this is all about me and he's obsessed with everybody else being about him as well is that wrong well the only way that it's wrong is if you're not worthy of being worshiped so for me yes it would be wrong to make those statements and for god it is not but john piper and i love the way he says this he lays it out to show that this is not god being an egomaniac this is actually the best thing for us as well. And look at what he says. Here's the end of the matter. God is the one being in the universe for whom self-exaltation, lifting up yourself, is not the act of a needy ego, but an act of infinite giving. The reason God seeks our praise is not because he won't be fully God until he gets it, but that we won't be happy until he give until we give it. Do you see what he's saying? He goes, "This is not God going, please guys worship me. Just it'd be so cool if you'd worship me." He goes, our happiness, we're only going to find true contentment, true happiness when we are worshiping the one that we were created to worship, the one to whom all worship is due. He follows it up to say, this is not arrogance, this is grace for God to give us the privilege of worshiping him. And this is not egomania, this is love. This is love. You see, our joy and his praise, they go hand in hand. And worshiping anything else in this world other than God will only lead to disappointment. Because those things are not worthy of being worshipped. Nothing else can satisfy like our God does. He deserves the glory, and we are most content and joyful when we are worshiping him. God is God-centered, and so are do we be. The number two, the second rule is similar to it. No idols, says you must not make for yourself an idol or of any kind or any image of anything in heaven or on earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. What this reveals to us is that God is jealous. Remember in that day where the Israelites had just come out of, for 400 years in Egypt, the Egyptians had 2,000 gods that they worshipped. Polytheism was very common in that day. Now, we might look at this and go, all right, check. 
There's one that I don't have to worry about. I'm not carving any wooden idols in my garage and bowing down to them. But of course, we know it goes beyond the physical image. Um, what's an idol? Sorry, I was contractually obligated to make that joke. Now we can move on. Uh, idolatry, John Piper says, is being satisfied by anything you treasure more than God. So if we're looking to be satisfied, if we're looking for treasure in anything outside of God, he says that's an idol. And this includes the most valuable things in our lives. Family can become an idol. Family is a good thing that we're called to one of the top priorities in our lives. But if we're looking to that to satisfy us and we treasure our own family more than God, he says that's an idol. Church Church attendance, singing song to God, reading our Bible, hard work, you name any other valuable thing in this world, and if you're looking to that to satisfy you, if I'm looking for that to satisfy me and finding my treasure in that and not him, you've broken the second commandment. And that includes our own version of God. I remember Chris Colelli a year or so ago, I uh, was talking about that, 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 that when we, sometimes what we do is we treat God's attributes like a buffet, and we're like, all right, well, I'm going to take, I like, I like God being loving. I'll take a couple scoops of that. But I don't like the fact that God sends people to hell. So I'm not going to believe that part about God. And we kind of pick and choose. And before you know it, we are not worshiping the God of, of the Bible. We're worshiping our own version of God. And therefore, it's idolatry because it's not the one true God. It's our own God that we think we can manage, that we can control, that we can lead around. And so what God shows us here, he says, I'm a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other God. This is emotional for God. There's love at play here, and he shows that he's jealous. Now listen, the word jealous, because sometimes that can, come, that can have a negative connotation, right? Like we think about a boyfriend who's just super uh, insecure, and he's like, man, if my girl even says hello to someone else, I'm like, it's go time, right? You don't look at anybody else. You don't smile at anybody else. And that's like, you know, break up with him and run. Restraining orders are good. Um, but the word jealous in Hebrew is the same word as zealous, which is actually a, a very, a very synonymous in English as well. And what he's saying here is, God has zeal. He has a passion for worshipers. And he's passionate that we would worship him and him alone. And we often think of jealousy as a negative thing, but it's only negative if the object is misplaced. So like, if I was jealous that you guys came in here week after week and were singing praise songs to God and not to me, and not singing just then I lift your name on high, right? That's sacrilege. And you should fire me. Because I'm jealous for the wrong things. But if a husband comes to his wife and says, hey, are you down with me kind of marrying a couple other ladies? Okay? It is not wrong for you to say, I'm jealous for you and you alone. And God says, I am jealous, I am passionate that you would worship me and no other God. God exalts and only God. God is God-centered and he's zealous for his creation to be the same. Martin Luther, he said, these first two commandments, if we keep these first two commandments, all the other commandments would be kept because these first two strike at the heart of idolatry. And he says, basically, if, if you break any of the other commandments, you're breaking one of the first commandments. If you steal, if you lie, if you commit adultery, you're showing that there's something else more valuable, more treasured than God himself. And so if we worship him as he is to be worshipped, all the other 611 commandments would fall into place. 
then two more that are God-centered. And the rule number three, no misusing God's name. This shows us that, he says, uh, you must not use, misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. Now, what this shows us about God is that God is relational. Because this is more than just OMG, okay? This is not just using his name in the form of a swear word. And this has been said, and this has been very helpful to me to think about the heart of what he's saying here, is this is worship without relationship. So in other words, if we throw God's name out there casually, or we come into church and we're just singing, you know, God, you are good, you are great, you are, and we're kind of thinking about our fantasy team and what we're going to have for lunch, and we're kind of spaced out, and we're not actually worshiping in a relationship context. If we're not singing that to God, if we're using his name, if we just throw it out there flipp- flippantly in a promise, or we just claim who he is in our lives, but there's no relationship there, that you're violating this third commandment. God created us for a relationship. And when we throw it out there flippantly, we're spitting in his face, and we're misusing the name of God. Number four, keep the Sabbath holy. We're called the rest, like Simba there. He says, remember that to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, you have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This is showing us that God is holy. The word holy means to set apart. The word Sabbath means rest. So what he says is I want you to send, set apart one day a week for rest. Now remember, this was a rhythm that he had since the beginning of creation. We saw this when he rested on the seventh day. We saw this last week with the manna, even before he gave the law, just to, to gather double the manna on Friday so you would rest on Saturday. But now he's making this a law. And listen, this is not a day of laziness. This is a day set apart for the Lord. This is a day of worship. This is not a day of, of nachos and Netflix. This is not a day of I do whatever I want. He says this is a day to be set apart for me, to worship me, because he is holy and he's worthy of that worship. So the first four are vertical, and then we'll kind of fly through these last ones. Rule number five, honor your parents. Check. says, honor your father and mother, then you will live a long, full life in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Now, this is the only command that we see that there's a, in the first 10, that there's a direct promise applied to it. So I'm going to really work on that. Um, and then he says, what, what we learn here about God is that God is authority. And we said this last week. If we complain against our parents or against the president or whoever it is, that ultimately we're not complaining against them. We're not dishonoring them. We're dishonoring God because God's the one that put them in place. So he says, if if you believe in me, if you trust my authority, then you're going to trust the ones that I've put in authority over you in in your household. So to honor our parents and their authority is to honor our heavenly father and his authority. Number six, you must not murder. And this is because God is the life giver, and therefore we shall not take away the life that God has given. Only he has the right to do that. We have been created in the image of God And therefore, we are to respect and honor and love other image bearers. And Jesus even took this a step further. Not just don't kill an image bearer. You don't even look at them with hate in your heart. That's to dishonor another one that God has loved. Now, the word here is is rasa, which means to to slay or premeditated murder. Because we know in Ecclesiastes, he says there's a time to kill, right? And we see God in the Old Testament. There's a lot of death going on. And we see things like self-defense or war, and the issue gets complicated. 
What he's saying here is, is you, we do not commit murder, premeditated, self-based killing of an image bearer. Number seven, you must not commit adultery because God is faithful. Another, another uh, picture, there's Janelle and Ryan as I look on. On the outside, I'm smiling. On the inside, I'm saying, always the minister, never the bride. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to the jealousy in a second. Um, God created us to be monogamous. In fact, this, this law was so serious that it was, it was um, a, a capital punishment that you would be killed in Leviticus 20 if, if you committed adultery. And Jesus, he took it another step further. He said, you don't even look at somebody else with lust in your eyes. See, God uses throughout the Old Testament this imagery of Israel as his wife, and he calls her the wayward harlot as she cheats on him with other lovers and other gods and God says I've created you to be with me and me alone for an exclusive relationship to love each other and none other and therefore marriage is this beautiful picture here on earth of what it looks like to enter into this monogamous covenant with another person he says you don't even have an eye for another spouse and you do not have an eye for another god he's a faithful god who never leaves us nor forsakes us there is none other in his eye Number eight, no stealing. You must not steal. This teaches us that God is owner. God, as creator, is the only one that has the right to give and to take. And when we take something that's not ours, we effectively tell God that we're going to take your job from now on, that I know what I should have and should not have. Number nine, no lying. God is truth. God is truth. We know that um, God never lies and never deceives, but I want to take this a step further. There's an important relationship between love and truth. Um, um, our interns taught me this in our uh, staff meeting a few months ago, uh, which I found the, the actual source, you plagiarists. It says, uh, no, it says, truth without love is brutality. Love without truth is hypocrisy. Here's what this means. You can speak the truth, but if it's not spoken in love, it can still be wrong. If I walk up to somebody after their service and say, man, you're fat. Okay, that might be true, <laughs> and you could say that to me, to be fair, but, but, the, but if it's not, if it's, it, is that necessary? Is it kind? Is that the, what's the little breakdown? Um, if it's not said in love, then it's brutal, and, and that's not truth, and in the same way, love without truth is hypocrisy. If we just kind of walk around, this is a lot of our culture today, where it's just like, it's all good, man. Like, we just kind of accept everyone just as they are. No, the fact is we are sinners, and we need Jesus, and if we don't speak the truth with love, and we don't speak the love with truth, this commandment is not being adhered. When we gossip, when we start rumors, when we rip each other down behind our backs, whether or not it's true, if it's not truthful and loving, it violates this command because God is truth and, First John says, God is love. And then the last one, no coveting. You must not cover your neighbor's house, their wife, their male or female servant, their ice cream cone, uh, ox, donkey, anything else that belongs to them. And this, what this teaches us about God is that God is enough. See, God is all that God needs. God is satisfied with his own godness in the Trinity before he created anything else. He had all that he needed. He didn't create us because he needed us. He created us so that we could be satisfied in him. And the word covet, it means not, to, uh, it means to delight in. And he takes this a step further. He says, not just don't steal, but don't even desire what's not yours. See, it's not wrong for me to covet or to delight in people, possessions. But the problem is, the heart of this law says, I, I covet when I'm satisfied 
If I want what is not mine, and what I'm saying to God is, I'm not satisfied with you and what you've given me. I'm not satisfied with my lot in life. I need something else outside of this to be satisfied. And really, this is just applying the first commandment, not being content in God alone. All right, I've got to wrap things up here. Jesus was asked in the New Testament, Matthew 22, he said, how would you sum up this whole law? And uh, they were trying to trap him. But of course, Jesus was not one to be trapped. And so he says, well, here, here it is. He said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. What did Martin Luther say? That if you kept those first two commandments, if you're worshiping God and him alone, you're loving him with every, every part of your being, and he says, then the rest of the law is going to fall together. And then he says, the second one's equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. You see, you can't love God and not love people. It's a package deal. First John says that. So if we're loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we're loving neighbor as ourself, then we're keeping all 613 commands. So that's a lot easier, right? We don't have to keep 613 rules, just two. So, show of hands. How many of us in this room are loving our God with every fiber of our being, every moment, every second of the day? Go ahead and raise your hands now. You can do it now. Go ahead. Who's your... Raise your hand if, if you're loving your neighbor, if you're as concerned with your neighbor's well-being and their victories and their lives as you are your own. And what we're going to see next week is that the law is like a mirror. And it shows just how messed up we are and how far we fall short of God's godness. See, God is God-centered. In my flesh, I'm Justin-centered. He is holy. I'm completely unholy. He is truth. I'm a liar. God is faithful. And I'm a harlot. I need help. And God sent Jesus. He said the entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. The people of Israel, last thing, people of Israel are, are God's megaphone to the rest of the world. And he's speaking through the people of Israel to the rest of the world to show, this is what I'm like. This is who I am. They're also a trophy that he's lifting up and to say, this is what it looks like to be my people through their obedience to the law. You see, they're set apart. The reason he gave them a lot of these laws was to look different than the rest of the world. So the world would look at Israel and go, man, look at how amazing God is. And they see that through his people. That's why you and I are called to love. We're to be set apart from this world that puts self first. But God will also use Israel to show the world its sinfulness through their own disobedience. And as we walk through the Old Testament, we're going to see from this point for, for, uh, forward, with Israel under the law, is Israel will disobey, God will punish, they repent, and he forgives. We see it over and over again. Disobedience, punishment, repentance, and forgiveness. And the world goes, wow, look how serious God takes sin. Look how he punishes, and look how he forgives. Because ultimately, God wants to show the world its need for him to provide. The only people who come to him are those who he brings to himself on eagles' wings. And next week, we're going to look at how we see Jesus at the bottom of the law. Let's worship that God together. Father.
We confess that so often we come and we create a God of our own likeness. We, we pick and choose the things we want to, to believe about you and not believe about you. And Father, I see in my own life, my inability on my own to, to be God-centered, to worship you and you alone. And these other things, they catch my eye. And I, I believe the lie that these other things will satisfy. And so I make idols. I look for treasures in other places. And I'm unfaithful. And I'm a liar. Lord, and when we just come to you and we acknowledge our inability to, to keep that standard that you've set, we can't keep 613 laws. We can't even keep one law. That's why we desperately need Jesus. And we turn our eyes on him and find him as the all-satisfying treasure. He kept the standard for us. He is the only way that a sinful man can walk into your holy presence. May we wake much of him together as we sing the name of Jesus together.